Hi, it's Alex here. The Future of Film Summit 2020 is coming this November, and I'm so excited about what will be the first fully digital future of film. Not only will there be some incredible speakers and partners, we are in the process of building an interactive, digital-first experience that is going to be unlike any other film event. More details about this in the coming weeks, but while we are still shaping the programme, we'd really like to hear from you. What is the number one thing you would like to see at the Future of Film Summit 2020? What is the most pressing issue in determining film's future? Or put another way, what would you like to learn most about? Email me personally at alex at futureoffilm.live or share your suggestions on Twitter at futureoffilm underscore. You can see more about the summit and get tickets at futureoffilm.live. But for now, I'd love to hear from you and what you would like to see at the Future of Film Summit Online 2020. Hello and welcome to season four of the Future of Film podcast. My name is Alex Stoltz and this is a show where we share insights and strategies from the trailblazers and disruptors who are shaping the future of film. Today's guest is Matt Workman, who is a genuine pioneer in the field of virtual production and real-time filmmaking. Following a successful career as a DP of high-profile music promos and commercials, Matt developed the incredibly successful CineTracer app, which if you haven't seen it, I would describe it as kind of like a game about filmmaking. But more importantly, it allows filmmakers to learn, experiment and design in real time. Now Matt is driving forward virtual production, combining traditional cinematography techniques with real-time graphics using Unreal Engine, and in the process making these tools and workflows accessible to directors and cinematographers worldwide. In this interview, Matt takes us through his creative journey to this nexus of technology and cinematography, and why he is so passionate about democratizing virtual production. Epic Games CTO Kim Library recently said on the show, Matt Workman is incredible, and I couldn't agree more. If you want to find out more about Matt's prolific and inspirational output, I urge you to check him out on Twitter at CineDatabase. This episode was recorded as part of Rebels of Storytelling, which is a free video series you can watch now at futureoffilm.live. Rebels of Storytelling would not have been possible without the incredible support of Epic Games and Unreal Engine, who are pioneering the transformation of screen storytelling. We are also very proud to partner with Creative England's Creative Enterprise Programme, you can find out more about the Creative Enterprise program and the two new grant funds they have available for screen industry business planning post-COVID and to develop innovative new ideas, both at creativeengland.co.uk. If you are enjoying the show and want to discover more about the future of film, head on over to futureoffilm.live. Here you can check out all four seasons of the podcast, explore our other free resources like Rebels of Storytelling, 
and download the free Future of Film report. So that just leaves me to say thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this conversation with virtual production pioneer Matt Workman. So Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for taking the time. And I'd just like to start by asking about your career, because I think it's really instructive, I guess, from your journey, your particular journey from where you started and how you've arrived to this place in virtual production and virtual cinematography. Can you tell me about that, please? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, the, the bulk of my career, I was a cinematographer shooting live action commercials and music videos in New York City. And you know, so like I actually did start a little bit in VFX. I, I interned at Curious Pictures in New York City, like an animation studio. And I've always loved 3D, but back then I didn't love how slow it was. It was like really slow, not, not too much fun. It, from my point of view, I really wanted to have things be like more live. Uh, so I ended up working in New York City at a VFX company, um, but then transitioning into being on set and live action and then uh, ended up being a DP. I just like dealing with images, you know, the cameras and the lights. And I did that for about 10 years. Hmm. And so, yeah, so what was it that then took you from that, that place where you were working on set, cinematographer, to starting thinking about well, some of these tools, I guess, which have kind of evolved into virtual production. What was it that you really, uh, yeah, you wanted to sort of explore, I guess? Like, so as a DP, um, when I started working on like really big visual effects commercials is when things really started to change. So there would be like weeks of pre-production for like these like, you know, maybe like a three-day stage job or something like that. And I'd be working with a VFX company, with the director, the production production designers, and they would be all working in 3D, right? There were these CADs that would go out of the sets and the, the VFX people would be like, you know, showing camera animatics. And I really wanted to be able to contribute in that space as a DP, but there really wasn't a way back then. So I actually started learning Maya, um, you know, with my little bit of 3D background, I had like a little bit of a head start, but I pretty much had to learn it from scratch um, just so that I could communicate in pre-production with the directors and the VFX supervisors. So I started making my own Maya tools for just me as a DP. But um, after really liking that, I was like, wow, this like kind of, it's called like tech viz or, you know, technical previs where you're just looking at dimensions and it's really more about the, the behind the scenes diagram than it is like through the lens, you know, like through the lens, like an animatic that the director would look at and the technical diagrams are more like what you show the crew. It's like, okay, so really there's a turntable here, the camera's on a 50 there and the lights go there. Okay. Right. So like, how do we actually execute this? Um, and so I got very specialized into shooting like motion control with like robots that were like repeatable moves and turntables and lights that were timed at certain times. So I started to get really, really into that. And I had to build my own tools in Maya to essentially uh, make that happen. And so, yeah, so it was really driven by this idea of trying to make things more efficient, I guess. And so you could plan more effectively and so yes, and where did where did that where did that lead to next? Because you're you, you've you, you can you've learnt Maya, you've uh, which 
I, you know, I'm I'm completely I'm I'm technical, but I understand. You know, that's a that's a you know software development for for creating visuals like that. Mm-hmm. And now, and you're sharing that with your crew. But then, yeah, what was the next step? Because you're trying to sort of create some efficiencies there. Um, where did you, you know, and how 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 did that sort of progress? So as a DP, I kind of had like a kind of like a good angle at the industry and a good corner of it, like very like, you know, niche, technical, like well-paying, big commercials. Like that's what I did. But uh, at a certain point, um, you know, I was known for that and that was cool. But I thought it would be cool to be able to like share that tool, like what I do, like my process and like the software and the stuff I built with other people. And uh, I looked at the Maya ecosystem. I thought that that was a little difficult to learn having done it myself. And uh, a friend of mine recommended that I look at Cinema 4D if I was going to try to release this to people. So I then learned Cinema 4D and made a plugin called Cine Designer. And I spent like about a year, I think, making that while I was like DPing and programming and learning how to do like all that stuff at once. And then I ended up releasing it to the public, uh, mostly to other DPs. That was like my plan and sold a lot of them like right out of the gate. Like a lot of people have been watching the 3D stuff I've been doing and they were really interested and they were even willing to completely learn Cinema 4D, which I spent, you know, years teaching on YouTube to filmmakers. I was like, here's how you learn Cinema 4D for previs for Cine Designer. And so that was like uh, a business that I ran for about like, three or four years, though I, it's pretty much um, discontinued at this point as I've moved into Unreal Engine. Yeah. yeah. What were you finding were the benefits of, of this, you know, this kind of technology or use, using these tools, I guess, on set and with, with, with the creative team? How did you find it changed the process? So the, the main thing is just communication. You know, like when we get on set, you're paid hourly. Most people are and you have so much time. So you want to try to make as many of the decisions and maybe even some of like the initial mistakes uh, ahead of time, just to really maximize like every hour that is very expensive to be on the actual stage where you're literally getting charged by the hour for hour for the lights being on costs money, everything costs money. So, you know, trying to front load the pre-production as much as possible, uh, you hope ends up with a better result. So you're not like, oh, like, oh, that camera angle actually doesn't work out that well. Let's just relight it. It's like you've just wasted time and money. And then ultimately you've, you know, potentially hurt the final product. So, you know, the, the mm. planning, the more you can do it uh, and the more technical you can, you can do it for certain jobs and for certain directors, you know, it hopes, hopefully makes the end product uh, better just because you've worked out some of the issues. Uh, mm. And it's, it depends on the director and, and the job. Not everything can be technically previs like that. Um, but when I was a DP, that's the only type of job I was taking was like very detailed animatics where like everything was planned, like focal length distances, products were being um, fabricated to the exact size. Like we could 3D print certain like, you know, support structures that we would need for this is like tabletop stuff. So, you know, in a, in a world where like you can basically create anything like a stage, like this is not a documentary, like we're building everything. How big do you want it? It's, it's pretty crucial to, to plan at that level. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And then you, so then, but then you kind of pulled back from DPing yourself and really went, lent a lot more into creating these tools for, for everyone to, to, to benefit from. Uh, so yeah, what, what, 
continue Matt, on on that journey you know you've you've you you're you've found that there's a lot of more efficiencies using these kind of tools and these kind of systems in terms of planning in terms of the creative process where did you take it next so i made cine designer i released it and you know for all intents and purposes it was successful it wasn't a lot of sales but it was actually enough for me to consider not dping anymore and so i really put a lot of time into it and the company I created is called Cinematography Database. So I put a lot of time into YouTube. I've had multiple podcasts that have come and gone. Um, just all the social media, all the things that I think like a modern brand kind of would need. Uh, and so after about two years of doing that, I was full-time developer and like, you know, running a company, you know. So I, I think a lot of people, you know, recognize me from like some of the YouTube series I've had and, and stuff like that. But um, you know, it, it timed out well for my life as well. I had my second kid uh, about that time and we made the decision to move out of New York City and I moved back to like kind of my hometown in Boston, you know, where my extended family is and started to do software like way more full time uh, after about two years. And then the big transition, you know, um, for me was then uh, Epic Games had been watching the stuff I was building in Cinema 4D and, you know, building all these 3D filmmaking tools uh, and they reached out directly to me and asked if I'd want to build something like that in Unreal Engine. Uh, and I'd, I think just at that point, like the real-time ray tracing demo had come out. It was like, it was around then. And so the prospect of being able to like skip rendering, because rendering is like the really painful part of like the process I was doing before. It's like, you know, you know, minutes to an hour sometimes to get like a really nice frame resolved in Cinema 4D. Um, so seeing that, you know, uh, Epic or Epic Games Unreal Engine could do that at like a you know a reasonable quality but in real time like a video game that was really exciting for me so i started like the journey the, quite the quite the journey to, to learn unreal engine and then essentially translate cine designer to what is now cine tracer what can you do then in a game engine or in unreal engine that you couldn't do before you mentioned the the ray tracing how how has it transformed the, the products, how has it transformed Cine Tracer? Well, so there's like two main things. You know, the, the first is that with uh, Cine Designer, what I was doing before is that it, that was a plugin for Cinema 4D, hmm. right? So you would have to, the user would then have to learn Cinema 4D, which is challenging. And they'd have to learn everything about 3D. And then they would have to uh, acquire all the other assets as well. It's like you want 3D people, you want cars, you want all this. It's like it's it's basically you're like you're a professional 3D animator, but I give you camera and lighting tools and instruction. So that's expensive, time consuming, and then when you're rendering it, again, it's very slow. You know, you're not going to pull off animatics. You're really just going to get like a couple rendered frames. So that's the best I could do um, for myself and for people back then. But switching to a game engine, we're now rendering you know 60 frames a second, you know, constantly. And um, because I package it as an actual video game, it's a, a video game on Steam at the moment, I'm able to throw in there uh, other content. So I can throw in cars and furniture and you know, people and have that all rigged up for people so that they get this all in one package. They don't have to go get other stuff. And then um, you know, the real one, the, the interest for me was that again, yeah, it was real time. So we're just rendering constantly. So you just take a screenshot, that's your board. You know, so storyboarding becomes like very fluid and very fast. And then it's finally fast enough that we can do animatics. Uh, I can do like, I can hit screen record in OBS or QuickTime and I can just, you know, live 
pilot the camera, you know, have someone move around and it's like, it's like you're shooting live action footage, except it's uh, in a video game. So it's like a huge paradigm shift to go from like, you know, let me put in an hour or two of work and I'm going to get like one or two renders to an hour or two of work is now like, you know, 50 renders, you know, still frames and a couple animatics to describe something that's, you know, fairly complicated to do in an all-in-one package that is much easier to learn and also much cheaper. You know, like Cinetracer is, you know, in early release right now, like $90. Cinema 4D is about $4,000. Cine Designer was $500 and Set Designer, my other plugin, was also, I forget now, actually. I forget how much it was. But it was also uh, just a more expensive endeavor to do it before. And now it's 90 US. So that's a huge, huge difference. It's, it's better and it's cheaper. So it's, it's, it's changed a lot for my, you know, that business. And then like, I think for the workflows of filmmakers that are using it. And how, how are filmmakers using it? What do you, is there like a typical use case for it? Yeah. Like the, the core user uh, is a director or a DP that wants to just storyboard their film you know, or a certain sequence. Uh, I don't even see that much tech fizz. Like I did very technical stuff. I think people are just like, there's two people at a table talking. This is where they're located. The window's over here with maybe some suggestion of the lighting. So people go really into the lighting. But generally they walk away with just a couple stills, you know, storyboards that are 3D of what they're intending. And then they would just bring that on the set and show the actors. It's like, this is what we're going for today. And it's a pretty, you know, lo-fi execution, you know, like the main output of uh, Cinetracer is actually an eight and a half by 11 white storyboard, like paper that you print out, right? Because like that's still very much, you know, what's useful on set, you know, iPads and whatnot, those are, those are great. But the film industry is still very much a paper, <laughs> pen and paper kind of uh, on-set industry. So, you know, I, although I'm running Unreal Engine and we're real-time ray chasing, we're doing all this tech, really, I, I understand that, like, the simplest way to make this useful is to make it so that you can print it out and bring it on set. And it's simply an illustration of, like, this is what we're going for. It can go, we can make it go much further. But, you know, I think the core need for most people is to just simply communicate, you know, simple blocking and layout uh, and, then, and then print it out. <laughs> nothing, nothing fancy. You, you mentioned to me earlier when we, we talked about a lot of film schools using it right now. Yep. And so people are using it like as, as, a, uh, as a way to teach principles of filmmaking and lighting. Yeah. So, I mean, especially during, you know, these times, if we're allowed to reference that, you know, the schools are shut down and you're not able to get into classrooms and they can't get cameras and yet there's still film schools that have to teach students things. So, you know, a lot of the schools are looking at Cinetracer or starting to use it. We have to make curriculum for them um, to really teach the basics of filmmaking. They actually think it's like a great way to go where you're just like, you know, what is focal length, you know, and generally what is exposure and depth of field. These are things that really you can learn virtually and then apply them uh, to, the, to the real world camera. But in a lot of cases, it's actually simpler and faster to just learn it virtually and then learn a camera. You know, learning an actual camera is a different job than um, understanding the concept of focal length. So, you know, in a lot of schools, there's like maybe like a couple cameras for the classroom. So people have to take turns. And sometimes not everyone gets the turn. And it, it, it can be kind of a, you know, a cumbersome process to get hands on with the camera to learn it. 
um, using CineTracer virtually, they could do it in their, you know, in their dorm room remotely on their laptops and at least get something out of it. You know, like we could guarantee that everyone can, you know, move the virtual camera around and be like, oh, that's a 50, that's a 35. Here's a dolly move on those lenses. Like, what does that look like? So I think it's a good, you know, it's an additional tool and can be especially useful when, you know, classes are completely remote. And also if the classes are crowded and not everyone can get a camera. So uh, it provides at least another way of looking at, you know, how you teach filmmaking. You know, we really want to obviously get filmmakers on real cameras and real lenses, but this is something they could do on their own time whenever, you know, and it's, you know, a similar exercise uh, as far as learning. Yeah, and, and I've had a had a look at it and it, it plays like a game, right? So you actually, you've created a game about filmmaking, if you like. And so I guess that means it's, it's super accessible and anyone can pick it up. That is the goal with it, yeah. Having basically learned Maya, learned Cinema 4D, and then, you know, made that product and had to train people. It's like, I know how difficult that is and very few filmmakers have the time or the money to do that. So I really tried to make CineTracer as simple as possible, which it's still, you know, it's still a, you know, going to take a couple of days to get up to speed, but compared to like Cinema 4D or, or other programs, like those take months to years to get up to speed. You know, uh, a big priority is onboarding is that like, oh, this, it's supposed to look like Fortnite and PUBG and Minecraft a little bit to be inviting, you know, and then we slowly introduce the complexity, but like, you know, hopefully your first hour in it, you get it. You built a little house and you put put the camera out there and you're like, oh, cool. You know, I, I made something in an hour and that feels good versus like, usually it's a couple of weeks of spinning up a couple of things before you make something that actually looks nice. Yeah, we try to make it simple, which it's a bit of a double-edged sword because I think for um, some people it's it's good. They're like, yeah, you know, it looks like a video game. It looks accessible. I'd love to, you know, that's something I can do. Right? It's not intimidating. But for certain professionals, they're like, oh, I don't want to play a game. I want a professional tool. You know, and so they look at it, it's like, oh, why am I like walking around with a character? So it, it goes a little bit of both ways. But if I had to choose for CineTracer, I'm working on something else now that's more of the professional tool. But for the CineTracer like product line, so to speak, I, I would always lean towards the game side and the simple side and it be inviting because I think that's, um, I think that's a bigger need at the moment. There's more people anyway. You're listening to the Future of Film podcast with me, Alex Stoltz, and I'm in conversation with virtual production pioneer, Matt Workman. And if you want to find out more about virtual production or other aspects of the Future of Film, do check out the Future of Film report, which is available to download for free at futureoffilm.live. I noticed you recently rebranded as a virtual production cinematographer yourself that's it yep. <laughs> <laughs> tell tell me what that means and uh, and yeah, tell me what, what, what does that mean and what does that involve yeah so you know w- w- when i was building cinetracer it was really um not directly but you know a project i considered you know to be doing with unreal engine and i wanted to be able to build a plugin for unreal engine eventually like Cine Designer was, but I didn't know it. So I had to learn Unreal Engine. And, and basically the result of me learning Unreal Engine is CineTracer. Um, but, you know, I've kept this, you know, close relationship with Epic Games. And for SIGGRAPH 2019, they invited me to be the DP and technically director, but really I, I saw myself as the DP 
of a really cool shoot, a really cool virtual production job. And some people may have seen it. It was the motorcycle in the desert, uh, the LED wall shoot. So I got to DP that for a month. And, you know, I got to hear basically directly from the team that did the Mandalorian, you know, about this new type of virtual production that was on the LED walls. So I did that for a month as a DP. And, you know, after that, I was like, wow, this is incredible. Like, Explaining LED walls is, is probably beyond the scope of this, but it's, I was like, this is great to be able to just see in camera the virtual background, which is the LED wall, and the real people, and the virtual background lights the people. I was like, this is incredible. I wish I was still a DP. I was like, this is so cool. I would love to shoot stuff like this. And then at that point, I was two years into developing for Unreal Engine. So I'm a developer of Unreal Engine, but also a cinematographer. And now there's this new type of virtual production. I was like, this is great. I want to do whatever this is. And I think a lot of people, uh, I, actually, I know a lot of people are interested in that type of virtual production. So, you know, a couple months after that and kind of digesting it, you know, I really decided to move into um, what I would say was professional virtual production that happens in Unreal Engine, right? Like Cinetracer can't do that. You know, Cinetracer is this, I think, like very, hopefully, you know, simple uh, tool for filmmakers, but like now I'm talking about like, okay, well, what if we just unleash like the full power of Unreal Engine? What does that look like? So, um, you know, with the context of wanting to get to the LED walls, I started uh, kind of like a YouTube series and a new Unreal Engine project essentially. And it's kind of generally called like indie virtual production where I'm teaching myself all the like kind of core technical pillars of virtual production to get to the LED walls. And so I've been on that journey. And then at a certain point, I was like, you know, I kind of want to re-enter uh, the, the market kind of as a cinematographer, but I only want to do virtual production jobs um, because that's, that's my only focus, you know, at the moment. So that's kind of what's happened, not, not since Cinetracer. Cinetracer is still like my main project, but it's kind of my new project is India virtual production. And then me as a virtual production cinematographer, which to, just to further expand upon, you know, it's, I used to call myself a technical cinematographer, right? So people, I think people are like, oh, like, do you have to be a virtual production cinematographer to do virtual production jobs? It's like, no, but from like a, a marketing myself as a DP, I've always kind of picked a lane and then heavily specialized in it. And so I, I used to call myself a technical cinematographer. So, you know, most studios knew what that meant. It's like, oh, like you can throw me a Maya file and I'll design a camera move and send it back to you. And you can put that in the crane and the crane will do that move or I can help program different things like much more technical, you know, motion control. So now it's more like, hey, is this shoot happening in Unreal Engine? Is it an LED wall? Is it mixed reality? Anything like that. Like I could even write a plugin for you if I had to, you know, with this VFX studio to help you, you know, get certain things underway. That's a very specific, you know, type of DP work. And that's kind of... um the evolution to today that's like still it's like very fresh that's like in the last two months uh what's been happening well yeah i, lo I love the 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 indie virtual production tag because i think that's that's a that's a, for me that's been like a big question really is like obviously we see the mandalorian we we see how amazing those led walls are and, and what you can do there and that clearly provides solutions for certain projects. But you know how how accessible is it? How far can you 
take this, I guess, if you're working on a lower budget or working in a different, yeah, in a, in a different space. So I guess, yeah, what are the, um, how do you see that happening, you know, in terms of that bringing virtual production to a, a wider audience, bringing it to a more independent market? Yeah, that is, that has been my focus uh, for quite a while um, this year. So, you know, the, not to continue to plug Cinetracer, but, you know, like I built Cinetracer first and foremost for filmmakers who are not 3D artists, right? They never touched a 3D program. Mm -hmm. So Cinetracer is really a good place to start to see if you even kind of like this idea at all, right? It's like a low entry to buy. It's pretty simple. Do you like moving 3D people around and filming them with like a 3D camera and doing some previs essentially? Like, is that something that's like enjoyable to you or like, I hate computers, this is terrible. You know, I think, I think it's a good, like if you don't enjoy that, like at all, it, you know, like that's, that's probably a good sign. It's like, yeah, you, you may not want to go further into virtual production. Like it's a like good, getting your feet wet. Uh, and then from there, you know, you would get Unreal Engine. And what I tell most people uh, and what people pick up on from like, you know, the, I have a YouTube series that basically has been covering this is that you would get yourself uh, an HTC Vive, right? So like a traditional VR gaming uh, headset and the controllers, but we actually don't use the headset. You never put on the headset the way we use it. You simply take the controller and the system is going to track it that position. And so what you can do is that you could put a, a virtual camera on that controller and you can do like a handheld camera. So that's called virtual camera. And that's really the, that's one of the first steps that I think most people need to get to, to get started. And it's fairly consumer, you know, you need a nice gaming PC, you know, a VR headset with a controller, technically you don't need the headset, but I, I think you should get it. And then you go into Unreal Engine and if you can get to that point, which I still haven't made like this specific tutorial yet, yet, I probably will soon, but you get to that point, you're doing virtual camera and that's kind of like avatar. That's how avatar, you know, that's part of the tech with avatar that was so compelling. It's how Lion King was filmed. Like the, you know, that's one of the core technologies is camera tracking. And that's very accessible. Unreal Engine's free. You know, you can set this up, the documentation's there and you can make a little 3D film. That's like the first step. And then there's multiple, <laughs> multiples after, but that's a great way to get started. And it's, it's very consumer, very accessible. And I think now more than ever, it's um, looks great because, you know, say we standardize on like the NVIDIA 2080 Ti, Although it's a, you know, a $1,200 graphics card, that's still affordable, I think, for a filmmaker who might then use it for Resolve or Premiere for editing. Uh, the graphics look incredible. Whereas if you did this five years ago with that tech and all of this, it would have been much harder to do. The, the vibes weren't as... Um, I don't even know if the vibe was out at that point. And then the hardware wasn't there to make it look good. But today, you can make something that looks really good with you know, a gaming PC and a Vive as a start. Uh, and something which can actually be a, a final product is that is it is it at that level? Yeah, you know, I the, definitely the rendering capability of Unreal Engine is there. You know, and I feel like you know myself, I'm a developer who's been doing it for a long time. I can make like really great images out of it. So much that like I've been talking to studios about possibly shooting stuff for them, quote unquote, shooting, filming, but all in Unreal Engine for studios. I think that for a filmmaker getting into it, they're going to, it's going to, you know, you have to learn how to get to that quality, but the engine can do it. You know, it's learning how to get to that, to that quality. Um, what I would say is the next step after virtual camera 
is to go into mixed reality, which is what we're almost kind of doing today with you and I on the green screens here, where, you know, digital humans and animating them in mocap and whatnot, that's all virtual production. And I teach that and I'm learning it too. Uh, that's fairly difficult. <laughs> Any way that you swing it, that is, you know, a 3D process and, and requires a lot of 3D knowledge. But what a lot of filmmakers want to be able to do is to take a real person because like they know how to light an actual actor and we could work on a green screen, but be able to see uh, the virtual set behind you. So virtual sets, mixed reality, that's like the next step for virtual production. That's where a lot of filmmakers want to get in. And you can still just take mostly any camera, really. You need like an SDI camera. I really recommend the Blackmagic uh, Versa Mini Pro G2 to get started with it. But you can feed that video into Unreal Engine, do the compositing there, and then you can use that same Vive controller or Vive tracker to actually match the CG camera and the real camera so that when you move the real camera and you're filming someone on green screen, the CG background moves too the right way. And it'll go out of focus. And then because it's real time, you can just go in Unreal Engine, you can light the CG background and then come back to the live action and then light the foreground too. So instead of it being like, hey, let's shoot the green screen and then we'll comp it later, we actually do it all together at the same time and we see it while we're shooting it. And if you like, you can actually just capture the, the composite right there and you don't comp at all. You know, it depends on what level of quality you're going for. So that's, you know, mixed reality virtual production. And that's very, very interesting to filmmakers um, who might already have cameras and lights and green screens. Now, you know, essentially for free on the software side with Unreal Engine, you can have a virtual set that looks great again because of the hardware that we have available. And uh, you know, virtual sets is like a on green screen is like a big, a big component, and a lot, a lot of that. That's like a, a like a big track that I'm starting to teach, and there's a lot of, a lot of cool camera tech around it that's not, um, you know, widely known to people. So mixed reality is, uh, I think, like the next step after after previs and vcam. Uh, amazing, and just <laughs> so much, so much you can do, you know, potentially using that. Um, so. Where, I mean, where do you think this is all going, Matt? I mean, in terms of the, you know, these you're working, you know, really on the um, on the front line, I guess, pushing these technologies and pushing push working with independent filmmakers and really exploring how they can be utilised, you know, on a practical level, uh, which is which is amazing. So taking a step back and thinking, you know, bigger picture, you know, how you see things developing um for the for like on a you know industry level on a uh you know for production where do you think do you see like virtual production becoming like you know integral to every shoot virtual production is you know just another tool you know it's another way of filming you know if we look at the led walls it's the you know, evolution of rear projection, where you might have shot someone in a car and the background was like a projector on a wall that played like a street driving. This is like a 3D-tracked version of that, but it still has to live within the, you know, the same restraints that a rear projection shoot would have. You, know, you, you can't look off of the wall. In, in most cases, you can't, you, there's, there's some ways to do that, actually. But, you know, so it's not right for everything, but it will work extremely well for things like you know, what they did with The Mandalorian. And so we're still going to have, you know, traditional green screen. We're going to have, you know, built sets with trans lights outside of them. But this is just one more tool, right? And for certain projects and executions, it's going to make, um, 
it's going to make more sense than the old way uh, potentially. But you know, it's not going to replace film any other technique. I don't believe it may it may be better, but we're um, going to still see green screen, regular production, and virtual production is another category that we'll have. Um, you know, and ultimately, you know, to make a movie or a commercial or a music video or a YouTube video or a Twitch live stream, any of those things, it still has to be really good content. You know, that's what's mostly important. The story, the actors, you know, if it's all CG or not, or partially, that, that's what really matters. And I think that what we'll end up seeing is that um, it will become just easier to do visual effects. You know, things that were like, you know, say we want to shoot this whole movie on Mars and it's green screen. It's like, that's pretty, pretty difficult right now if you don't, you know, use virtual production. It's like, we just shoot it on green. So the actors don't quite know what's going on. The DPs don't really know either. And it becomes this very disconnected process of like pr uh, production and post. Uh, if you use virtual production, it just becomes a lot easier, I think, for everyone to see what's happening, right? So everyone would then see, hey, that, uh, did I say Mars? I forget, but like, there's the virtual background, right? We all see it. When I move the camera, I'm like, oh, cool. Like that's, that's what's going to go back there. And you make lighting decisions based on that. And, you know, that makes making a visual effects film on Mars that much easier, I think, and, and a smoother process and, and simpler, hopefully. Uh, and same with an LED wall. It's like, oh, great. Now the actors can even see the LED wall and the LED wall is now lighting me, right? So it's, it's still the f same filmmaking process. If the script is bad and the movie is bad, then no one cares. But, you know, with a good script and all that there, it's like, hopefully now it's a little bit easier, right? The, like me as a DP, it's like, Oh, that's what goes to the background? Awesome. I mean, if it's an LED wall, I'm filming it too. But just knowing, being informed of, you know, uh, what's going to happen and bringing that process, all the decision-making essentially right there on set and a lot in pre-production, uh, I think it's going to make it a more enjoyable process on set. And hopefully that results in, you know, better films and better filmmaking because the decisions are being made um, in a way that, that makes sense. You know, so as we go into... Space, you know, shoot it. There's going to be a lot of space movies, <laughs> I think, coming up. A lot of superhero movies, you know. Um, that virtual production, just, I hope it just makes it more pleasant to do uh, as a process to shoot it, and hopefully that makes it a better film. But really, it's just a, it's just a new tool, really, out there. But we still got to do the, still got to do the hard work, the story and the acting, and whatnot. But um, hopefully, it's a little bit more enjoyable. I'd even get back into shooting again if I can do it that way, you know, like I, I really was not a fan of the disconnected as a deep. It's like, I just shoot people on green. Like, I don't really, I don't know what's happening. I was not into that after quite a while. Um, but like I said, it's like being on the led volume again. I was like, Oh, if I can see the virtual set and I can light it, then this starts to be fun again for me. You know? So that's, that's what I hope for it. And that's kind of the, um, the direction I have when I'm building tools as well. So I'm like a DP that wants to do it, but I also want to make the tools, that, that makes it possible, that makes it pleasant to be on set. Do people get that on set immediately? And do, do things need to change in order for, because you talk about making the decisions earlier, making the decisions you know, in pre and, and, and so you create those efficiencies, but does, does like the, you know, the structure need to change in order for those conversations to happen? Or is it kind of just naturally in your experience that sort of stuff takes care of itself. Right now, I mean, it depends on what we're talking about. Like I've, I've been talking to a very wide gamut of people. Like I talked to someone who they do professional game cinematics, 
for in-game, get there using virtual production. And then it was television, there's, you know, um, you know, TV series, video on demand, there's feature films, and they all have very different structures and end products, um, but they all are virtual production. So it really depends on where we're, we're aiming at. But so if we take episodic television, which is pretty big right now, I would say it's probably like 90% of production is like, that I hear about is, you know, Game of Thrones and episodics. Uh, their industry is not pipelined for virtual production yet because most of that decision-making is definitely happening in post. That's the way the TV was conceived and that's the way that it currently is. So to, you know, to get episodic television to be able to do like an, a Mandalorian or even have virtual sets in the background, it's a major restructuring, right? And so I think the people that will be leading the charge with that and able to like, you know, disrupt their own companies and make that an upfront investment into LED walls, into making a real-time pipeline. So we have assets up front are the majors. So you picture someone who's going to be like, like a Disney or Marvel, like, well, we're going to shoot a hundred TV shows this year. If we make this investment now, long-term it pays off. I think those are the main studios you're going to see doing it. And then you start to look at things of like, oh, we already have the moon, right? Reusable assets that are already there. We already have a lot of these actors, you know, virtual actors, they're already pre-rigged and ready to go. Um, so I think we'll see like those studios jump onto it first. For the smaller studios, um, it's a little trickier. And I think it might, uh, you know, it's going to need like a, a, a fresh set of eyes for people that really want to do this. I consider myself one of those people um, to just take a different angle on production where it's like a lot of pre-production. Like in, it's not even pre, it's like, it's it's more it's like pre-production plus you know it's like so much that we're going to just shoot the movie with the all the assets like right there and like you're pretty much playing the video game of the movie in a certain sense with real actors sometimes so you know big studios they're already making that move and i think that makes sense for them and the smaller ones they're going to have to be the you know the people who like being on the cutting edge and like changing things because uh, currently there's a pretty healthy separation between the shoot production and post and people are pretty comfortable with that. They understand it, you know, so it's, it will take some um, trailblazers, I would say. That's really, that's really helpful and, uh, and, and fascinating. Um, you mentioned also about space movies and superhero movies, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, we all, we all love, uh, but is there, are these tools going to work also for, for dramas and for other types of, you know, like a period drama or something, is, it, is, that, is that viable? Is that going to work? It definitely could work. I think it comes down to the director and if they're comfortable shooting something like that. You know, it's like when you, instead of being like actually in the fancy mansion for the period film, it's a green screen. Does that lend itself to making that film better? You know, so it really depends. Uh, you know, for... For well-executed visual effects, I always go to Dave Fincher and his films like Gone Girl has, is a VFX movie that no one knows it's a VFX movie. Like a, lot of the, like a lot of that is green screen. A lot of that is completely virtual sets and just no one knows because he does such a great job of matching from a, v, from a VFX execution point of view, but also from a direction point of view. He just knows how to seamlessly make VFX, you know, not call attention to itself and just really serve the story. So it's going to come down to um, the director. You know, I, I think if a certain director wants to execute a drama and they know how to do it, 
in that space, then, you know, it can happen. Is uh, Like I say, Gravity, that's clearly a space movie. But it is a story about one person, you know, uh, and very VFX heavy, but it's still a, a drama. It's a drama, you know, drama movie. There's not, there's no starship battles. It's, it's in space, but it's really about one person. Um, you know, so it's, it's about the director who's going to be able to do that. And I think a John Favreau, of course, is going to be able to go in that direction. So it's definitely possible. Uh, I just think that like a lot of the traditional directors are just used to working on real sets and there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> that's, that's a great way to go, but it is possible. We just need the creatives that can, um, that would want to execute it that way. Well, there's loads of um, benefits surely for, for doing it this way as well with, um, you know, in our current environmentally, you know, as we're coming out of COVID, these, these can be very sort of, um, uh, sort of, you know, self-isolated, not self-isolated, but you know what I mean? Yeah, sets yeah. which are which are pretty locked down uh, and uh, more containable. Yeah, I mean, if we, yeah, I mean, talking about the immediate future hmm. of production, virtual production is going to play a very large role just because we have to have the, amount of people on set lower that's you know that's that that does that uh, virtual production will do that um productions are not traveling anytime soon so you're going to see a lot of just like in the u well i'm talking i'm from the u.s you know so i'm you know you're going to see a lot of u.s productions who do not travel they will just like the actors are not leaving los angeles mm-hmm. they'll not leave new york and they'll not leave like the states like it's just not it's too risky to travel and shoot on location is going to be much much different much harder to do riskier harder to get insurance for versus a stage a nice comfy stage in los angeles you know that's going to be a lot easier for a lot of people as we get back into it like right now so so matt i'm putting you on the spot and i'm going to ask you what the future of filmmaking is i think it's good i think it's going to be really good um i'm excited to see kind of like a return to like kind of like documentary-esque filmmaking but in a virtual world where like one person you know like say we look at like you know french new wave it's like you know the the birth of like the 16 millimeter handheld camera whereas before it was this massive car-sized 35 millimeter camera that took like an army to just move it all of a sudden cameras were controllable by one person and you look at the films that came out of that and people just running around with cameras like crazy and that nowadays we take that for granted but if you went to film school or you were alive for that period like that's was a huge you know change and what i see and what i want to do uh and make happen through me as a developer and as a filmmaker showing it is kind of bring that same mentality where like oh it used to take like ilm and all these people to make these like films on mars well, now it's maybe one person like me or a couple people and they're just running around, but they're on Mars now, right? So it's, it's, it's like that, that's what I kind of want is like this freedom. And I, I think it's going to be happening. You know, we have distribution on YouTube now and all sorts of different things that are going to be enabled is like filmmaking from like one person's point of view that can be risky and about something completely weird and random. Whereas like you don't typically get nice VFX on something like niche and fringe filmmaking right it's all very mainstream has to be safe it's so expensive so with the prices coming down and it becoming more accessible i hope to see more like individual storytellers making riskier projects uh and taking risks and it being able to use the tools you know like what if what if you could like shoot you know mandalorian in your house but you could tell it your way with your actors right for your demographic and however you want to slide you know 
give it your slant and your style on it. That's what I think is going to happen. And, you know, that's what like a big driving motivator is for me to be able to go make my own projects. Like I, I make little films in the desert now with helicopters and it, they look pretty good, you know? And so a, a couple of years as we keep going with this, you know, I hope that more people uh, get, that, get that chance, you know? And it's like, you don't have to have, even the bigger directors who I'm talking to are, who are on X movie that we can't talk about. They're like, there's a lot of infrastructure around that type of a project that's that big. There's not that much freedom. Um, at all. <laughs> There's not much, you know, you're really executing, you know, a big group plan. They really want to let loose in virtual production and be like, I want to make like my story though, but with this. So I, I hope that we see uh, creators able to do like really big VFX projects, but with less people and um, more risk-taking, you know, more edgy, edgy stuff, fun stuff. I hope that's like really cool. Like, hey, the five people made this incredible movie and it's super weird, but you know, it's awesome, you know, that's, that's not currently possible without virtual production. I just love that idea that these technologies are going to open up new opportunities for new storytellers, new storytelling, and I think that's incredibly exciting. So that was my conversation with Matt Workman recorded earlier in 2020. And if you want to find out more about Matt or any of the other guests on the show, you can do all of this at the home of Future of Film, which is futureoffilm.live. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and look forward to seeing you again soon.